Good morning. I will be reading from Genesis chapter 7, where we'll be teaching of God's Word through this chapter. I'll be reading from the uh, ESV version. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older brother, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare for them from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go. Bring them to me. So he went and took them. And brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food, such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were in with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went in to his father and said, By father... And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat my game, of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? And he answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near, that I may feel you, my son to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he, so he came near and kissed him, and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven, and of the fatness of the earth, and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you, and nations bow down to you. 
Be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's son bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He said, He answered, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. And Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate all of it before you came, and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is it not right? named Jacob, for he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright. Behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, behold, I have made him Lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants. And with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also. Oh, my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, Your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereaved of you both in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let us go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Yahweh, you are a holy, merciful, good, and generous God. We do not deserve to approach you, but instead we deserve your righteous judgment. 
the atoning work of Christ gives us access to your presence. We thank you for your redemptive work for us and in us. Thank you for the gift and the privilege of prayer. We thank you for this church, for each person, for each soul that you have added to this number. For each household, we pray your blessing, that your love may abound and your glory may be reflected. Lord, I pray that you would do a mighty work in us, that you will change our hearts and that you will animate our passions all for your glory. Lord, liberate us from the love for this world. Inflame our love for you. Inspire and stir us to worship with all that we are and that we worship only you. May your glory be unveiled in us and through us for the world to behold. May each life here today be filled with your peace. Lord, even among the many complexities that we face each and every day. I pray for your wisdom to fill our hearts and minds and for your spirit, Lord, to empower us that we might remain faithful in all circumstances. Lord, we are living in the midst of thousands of souls that do not know you. So we pray that you would guard us against indifference and apathy, that you would bring conviction upon our hearts and fuel our passions for those lost souls. I pray that you would burden us to pray fervently, to pursue intentionally, and Lord, to proclaim truth faithfully. Use us to draw lost souls under your saving grace. Lord, trust us as a church body with new converts that we might disciple and mentor them. Strengthen this church that we may be a great light of hope to the world in which we live. Lord, we're mindful this morning of Shroers who serve you in another part of this world, and we lift them up to you and pray that you would bless them, even, Lord, as we gather here today. May may our prayers undergird and strengthen them. May they feel your presence, and may they, Lord, have some sense of our love and concern and Uh, intercession on their behalf, that you will use them mightily where they serve, that you will continue, Lord, to give them grace as they thrive in a foreign culture, Lord, all for your glory and for your honor. Protect their family. I pray that you would uh, unify them in your love, Lord, by your grace. Now we pray that, Lord, you would give us ears to hear, hearts to receive, Arms and legs, Lord, ready to obey all that you have for us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you, Jeff, for that marathon through the 27th chapter. I know that there were plenty of people who were quaking in their shoes, afraid they were going to be called upon to read uh, all the chapter. You know, in an interview that was uh, conducted with... Venezuelan actress Maria Fabriela de Fario, and it was done on behalf of Global Heroes and uh, written about in the Wall Street Journal, and it perfectly reveals uh, some of the things that go on in our culture. I would say even maybe the main theme that resonates in our culture, which is that of self-centered 
individualism. When she was asked, what is one good choice that everyone can make to improve the world around them? This was her response. She said, look for your own truth. Live your own truth instead of repeating everyone else's. She went on to explain, what's crucial to me is to make my audience question old beliefs. She counsels her fans to engage in a daily practice of asking, what do I need today? Because the only person who will know what works for you is you. Now, in the midst of all that mumbo jumbo is a theory, a theme of self-determination, self-reliance, which is prominent in our culture today. In a question and answer period, after one of his lectures, C.S. Lewis was asked which of the world's religions gives his followers the greatest happiness. Lewis paused and then said, while it lasts, the religion of worshiping oneself is best. One of the most iconic songs ever recorded is entitled, My Way. Frank Sinatra put it on the map, but many other recording artists have given it a go since he sent it up the charts. The song has been called America's Anthem of Self-Determination. The passage we're studying today provides a real case study of self-determination. Four people, a family, and working in and through them, we see this same spirit of self-determination, willfulness to do things their own way in their own time. What I want you to know as we make our way through it this morning and look and glimpse at each one of these lives is also to understand what's most important, and that is how it reveals God's purposes and plans to be affected by these strong-willed human beings. What, if any, impact does their willfulness have upon what God intends and does? So let's begin. We'll think about Isaac, first of all, and I want you to think about Isaac's failed leadership as it is displayed here in this passage of Scripture. There are three or four things about his leadership that are on display here. First of all, I want you to think about the urgency that he displays. He thought he was coming to the end of his life. Now, Martin Luther did some calculations here. And if you go all the way to the end of the book of Genesis and you look at Jacob's death and his arrival in Egypt and you start doing all the calculations, he arrived at this idea that Isaac is about 137 years old at this time. He's going to die at 180, so he's still got 43 more years of life left in him. But because of the things going on in his physical body, the deterioration of his eyesight, and probably other things, he thinks he's on death's door. So he panics a little bit. He gets this sense of urgency, things that he has to do before he dies. This is the way the enemy works. The enemy is always seeking to speed us up, to give us this sense of panic and urgency that we'll do things that we think are best when we think they're best, really serving our own purposes. God encourages us, on the other hand, to slow down, to be more deliberate, to be more intentional with what we're doing. Proverbs 14, 29 says, he who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has quick-tempered exalts folly. Psalm 130, verses 5 and 6 that we sang last week together in one of our worship songs, 
I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. And in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Now, unless you've been in a place where you were waiting for the dawn to come, you may not be able to appreciate the significance of those words. My dad told me when he was in the service and he'd have guard duty through the night uh, at his location, he said it was always the longest period of time there from about three o'clock in the morning until the dawn broke. And so the psalmist is telling us that he is expecting, he is longing, he's wanting it to happen quicker, but time doesn't come quicker because we want it to. So we wait for the Lord. Psalm 40, verses 1 through 3 says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay. He set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm, and put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust the Lord. Urgency is often used by the enemy to cause us to panic and to trust in ourselves, our own ways and methods and times, instead of waiting patiently on the Lord. So it's happening with Isaac. Isaac, rather than waiting and trusting God and understanding the promise that God has set upon he and his family, he is sped up in his thinking by the circumstances around him, by the things that he's feeling in and of his life. Then I want you to see also his secrecy. It was customary to gather all the family together when you got ready to give the blessing. That is, this was something that pertained to all the family. Who's going to succeed the patriarch in leading the family? Who's going to receive the double portion of possessions and be the representative of the family in all public matters? This is important to all of them. And so it was customary to bring them together. At the end of Genesis, we will see Jacob do this when he is to pronounce the blessing upon his sons. He brings them all together and gathers all the family together. It becomes an event. And then I want you to see his carnality. He thinks death is coming. And so what, what is prominent upon his mind? You would think, I've seen this happen with some people. Maybe we think it would happen with us, but when we know death is coming, you would think there would be an urgency for the things of God, right? You'd think you'd want to make sure that things are good between you and God, but there's no evidence that Isaac thinks in these terms. In fact, he's thinking more fleshly. He's looking for one last encounter with the passions of the flesh. He wants his favorite dish, and he wants his way. There's no mention of God or spiritual things. Verses 2 through 4 are filled with personal pronouns. The focus is on himself. Bring me my favorite dish, you know, the one I love, that I may eat of it and that I may fill myself and that after I've done this, then I will bless you, Esau. Which brings us to his conspiracy that I may bless you before I die. This was a direct contradiction to God's explicit declaration in Genesis chapter 25 and 23. He told Rebekah, and you can be sure that Isaac was privy to this information, that it was Jacob who would be the blessed son, the one who would be the promised line through which God would bring about his blessings to all humanity. 
And so Esau is doing exactly the opposite of what God has instructed and declared would be the case. Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan but not mine and make an alliance but not of my spirit in order to add sin to sin. Isaiah 30, 1 and 2. So we see Isaac's failed leadership. He's been accused of being somewhat passive, you know, not not really taking the bull by the horns. And I think we can concur with that, that he's not the spiritual leader in the home, not at all. Secondly, we see Rebecca, and we see Rebecca's willful heart. She's a willful woman. First of all, she was suspicious. Mistrust seems to characterize this home. The text says that Rebecca was listening. Now, I know we might give her the benefit of a doubt and say, well, Rebecca just happened to be on the other side of the curtain. Rebecca just happened to be around the corner and overheard this conversation. The implication here in the language is that Rebecca was intentionally hiding in order to listen. She knew everything that was going on in the household, as she is evidenced later on in this text. It's not just an accident. She's intentional. She's purposed. She's listening always to everything taking place because she's a control person. She wants to control all that's taking place there. She was suspicious. She was calculating and manipulative. Urgency, again, dominates the theme here. Notice how little time it took her to concoct this elaborate plan to undo what Isaac was doing. I mean, in order for this to take place, she had already thought about this plan. She'd already prepared. She knew and was experienced in manipulating her household. This was the way they functioned. That's why there was so much much mistrust there. Now, if Isaac was 137, remember, we, we read in the text that Isaac was 60 when the twins were born. So these two guys are 77 years of age. They're mature men. (laughs) Let your mind think about that a little bit because when you read the text, you might think, well, they're still just teenagers, you know, and so she can speak and they just do whatever she, they're they're in their 70s. They're mature men. And she's still controlling the lives of them and her husband. She knew how to prepare goat to taste like Esau's, Esau's wild game. She had Esau's best garments somewhere at hand. She got them out and made Jacob put them on. She had figured out how to make Jacob, who was a smooth man, feel like Esau, who was a hairy man. Take a young goat, take the skin from a young goat, put it on his hands, on his neck, And if Isaac dares to touch you, it'll feel like Esau. The clothes will make you smell like Esau. The dish I will prepare will make it feel like you've gone out and hunted just like Esau and brought in the dish that he always prepares. This is a conniving woman. And she's executing something that she had long planned. 
She was self-determined and faithless. She was not going to allow Isaac to execute his plan. Now, I know what you're thinking. She knew what God had said, right? God had said the blessing's going through Jacob. So if you're a a person who wants to defend Rebecca, you're going to say, well, she's just carrying out God's plan. And that's right. She's carrying out the right plan, but she's doing it with all the wrong methods. She's doing it with all the wrong methods. She's right about the blessing, but her methods were ungodly. So we simply have to ask the obvious question here. Doesn't her rightness and the importance of the matter justify her action? The fact that God had said this is the way it would be, and Esau's trying, or Jacob, Isaac's trying to get Esau the blessing, doesn't this justify what she's doing here? And if not, what should she have done instead? Here's what I would submit to you this morning. A godly woman, a truly godly, God-fearing woman, should have spoken to her husband directly and openly about his sin. Submission never includes silence toward evil. Once she had warned Isaac about what he was doing to contradict God's plan, then she should have trusted God. He is, after all, all all-powerful and all-wise. Her actions betrayed her lack of faith in the sovereignty of God. You may remember in Judges chapter 6, there was a story there about Gideon who was purging false worship and he destroyed the altar of Baal. And the men of Ophrah got all upset about it and they were going to kill him. And they said, let's go find him and kill him. And Gideon's dad, Joash, came to his defense and he said, listen, if Baal is God, cannot Baal take care of himself? Why does he need you to do this? Trust him. And Rebecca would have done well to think about things in that manner herself, that she should have said, if Yahweh is God, cannot Yahweh carry out his plan and purpose, even though Jacob or Isaac is trying to contradict him. But instead, she trusted in herself, her own ingenuity, and her own determination. This brings us to Jacob. Now, Jacob's going to be one of the primary figures in all of Genesis. But here we see that Jacob has an unprincipled character. Notice when Rebekah poses the plan to him, he offers no rebuke. He doesn't challenge her in any way. In fact, he just accepts what she proposes. He demonstrates no honor toward his father and no pushback toward his mother and her evil strategy. He showed no spiritual interest, no interest in the morality of these actions. He showed no shock regarding the distrustful behaviors among his family. And he does not mention the law of God or seem to consider it. He's only concerned with one thing. What if I'm found out and I lose the blessing? He's only concerned with himself. We also see that he executed what I call the big lie. The big lie. C.S. Lewis said a little lie is like a little pregnancy. There's no such thing, right? A lie is a lie. Adolf Hitler believed in using the big lie approach to deception. 
He thought that little misrepresentations might draw suspicion. But the big lie is so incredible that most of people will assume that it's true. Jacob posing as Esau was nothing less than a big lie strategy. Now one commentator described things in this way. He said, perhaps Jacob never intended this lie to become as big as it did. But nevertheless, it grew bigger and bigger with every statement he made. It began with the words, I am Esau, your firstborn. And from this lie, another quickly piled on. I have done as you told me. Eat of my game. And in response to Isaac's penetrating question, are you really my son Esau? Jacob replied, I am. However, the lie that sends chills down my back as I read it is found in verse 20. And Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have have it so quickly, my son? And he said, because the Lord your God caused it to happen to me. I mean, you see, he's pulled God into his lie, into his sham. He's using God for cover and vindication in his disobedience and sin. And then we see Esau's depraved soul. He's devastated and desperate by this sudden turn of fortune. What he thought he was about to get and flip the script. Okay, he sold his birthright, but he's going to end up with a blessing. He and Isaac have concocted this plan. They're doing it in secret, away from the family. He's going to come out on top after all. But Jacob, once again, has proven to be more cunning and deceptive, along with his mother. He's in bondage to sin and self. Bless me also, O my father. He's physically Abraham's descendant, but he resembles more Cain and Lamech. You see, he's depraved. He's depraved. He's cursed. What we see Isaac pronounce upon him is just a manifestation of the reality of his own heart and soul. The blessing dominates Esau's speech as he interacts with his father. He's not concerned with anything spiritual. It's all material. It's all egocentric. He covets the double portion of his father's possessions. He covets the respect due to the patriarch and leader of the family. He covets the control and status due to being in charge of family matters. He's pleading, he's begging like a petulant child trying to get his way. Instead of blessing, he reaps a curse. He doesn't understand that the actual spiritual aspect is what's important here, what's at stake. It's not the physical blessing. It's not the material things. It's the spiritual things. This is the whole point. This is what the Pharisees and the scribes couldn't get later in the New Testament, right? They were still focused and committed to the physical. We, are, we have DNA from Abraham. Therefore, we're God's people. No, it's not the people who have descended by blood, but it's those who have been cleansed by the shed blood. This is not a very inspiring story, is it? But it does offer us a great challenge. It warns us to evaluate our hearts and our actions. Are we passionate? Are we passionate for what we can get or experience from this world? 
Is that what determines how we live and move and act and think? Is that what's always in the back of our minds? Or do we recognize and pursue greater things like fellowship with Yahweh? I think you can make the case that three of the four people in this text actually are a part of God's people. We know Isaac is, right? In spite of his stumbling and bumbling and failed leadership, Isaac was part of the chosen line. He recognizes it. Verse 33 gives us some insight. This may have been the moment that changed Isaac's life. When he realized what had taken place, it says he trembled violently. Something happened inside of him. And he affirms that, yes, Jacob will be blessed. Why? Because God has said he will. And God has proved it. Hebrews 11.20 says, by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau. He knew that God is a, man, God, is a God of his word. That God does what he says he will do. Which causes us to question, why go against him to start with? Why would you contradict God when you know God is God of his word? Well, we all have to give answers to that question, right? Rebecca demonstrated a dependence on God when she was pregnant with the twins and there was a struggle going on. What did she do? She went to God in prayer and God spoke to her and told her what was going to happen. Maybe that's why she loved Jacob more than Esau. She did what she did, trying to align with God's design, but she allowed herself to get too far in the middle of this. She, she took too much ownership over trying to make things happen the way she thought were best. Jacob, we know to be the chosen seed through whom the covenant would go. He's a, de a deceiver and a con man for most of his life, or a good portion of his life. The scripture says all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. But God set his love and mercy upon Jacob, just like he has for many of us here today, in order to accomplish his own purpose for his own glory. Did he follow his own fallen nature too often? Absolutely. Absolutely. He's not done. We're going to see some more of that. But God's election is sure. God's going to redeem him. You see, at the, at the end of the day, there's really no difference between Esau and Jacob. Except God's grace set upon Jacob. And there's no difference between us and Esau and Jacob, except God's grace being set upon our hearts and souls. Esau, he's depraved, and he remains in his depravity. Here's what I think we need to take away from the study today. God's in complete control always. It's easy to give lip service to it. It's much more difficult to walk in this truth right? Proverbs 16, 9 says, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Proverbs 19, 21, many are the plans in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord, it will stand. 
Psalm 76.10, the wrath of man shall praise you, Lord. Will not win. Man's sin can never frustrate the will of God. He will use it to fulfill his will. God's purpose expressed to Rebekah was perfectly accomplished, just as he said it would be. You think about all the effort, all the hijinks that were involved in this chapter. As they were seeking, desperately working to make all these things come about and to align the way they should align. And God still accomplished what he said simply was going to happen. Jacob will be blessed. Esau will serve Jacob. Period. God's always in complete control. Secondly, sin always produces division and conflict. It's no clearer than in the Garden of Eden, is it? Sin immediately separated man from God. Sin immediately separated men from men. So we see Cain rise up and take the life of his own brother, Abel. Lamech's attitude of polygamy and vindictiveness was on clear display in Genesis 4. Sin always divides and poses conflict. Thirdly, sin distorts every aspect of our being. There's no part of us that's not subject in some way to sin's control, sin's influence, sin's impact. Our intellect is warped by selfishness, idolatry, self-dependence. Our emotions are confused and untrustworthy. Look at the people in our passage, for instance. If you, if you don't believe it, just take a look at these people. This is a case study. Our will is in bondage to evil desires. We want what we want, when we want it, how we want it, for as long as we want it. If you are trusting in your own wants and ways, you're on a path akin to Esau's. Believe the gospel. Repent of sin and trust in Christ. It's our only hope. It's the only hope that we have. But even in Christ... Even as Christ followers, we still stumble in this world. We trip over ourselves. We still want things that are harmful and contradictory to God's plans and purposes. We're still willful and arrogant. But what God declares cannot be derailed, no matter what the circumstances. We may reap the painful consequences of sinful choices, but we cannot and will not subvert God's plan. This should be a violent shaking of our own hearts, especially the rebellious heart who lives for himself. It should startle each and every one of us who is flippant or casual toward God's law. It should make us quake in our shoes to think that we might practice indifference toward God's moral law. It should grab our attention to think that this whole world is characterized by its rebellion toward God and that God's word will not go forth void. It's going to accomplish what he says it will accomplish. He promises judgment for rebels and nothing can, de nothing can derail that. The world doesn't like it. We don't like to hear it. 
What do you mean judgment? Yes, hell, it's real. It's a part of the judgment, the justice of God. You can dislike it. You can try to deny it, denounce it all you want to, but it won't stop it. Because God has said this is what's going to happen. If you think the rules will change and everything will be okay, you're tragically wrong. For those who trust Christ, who know God's love, grace, and salvation, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. (laughs) That's the good news, right? If you have believed the gospel and put your trust in Christ, there is nothing that can separate you from Christ. Romans 8, 31 through 39. I would encourage you to read that today. So when you stumble, when you falter, when you find yourself giving in to these wrong desires that the world impresses upon us, you don't have to give up in despair. You don't have to believe the enemy's lie. You can believe God's truth that you're not separated from the love of God. Nothing can separate you from Him. Nothing. What a great encouragement that is. I'm going to fail this week. I'm going to falter this week. I'm going to sin this week. Romans 8, 31 through 39 says, I'm not separated from Christ. Once I'm in Christ, I'm in Christ forever. God means what he says and says what he means. Nothing more, nothing less. Nothing more, nothing less. And all of our efforts to try to make things work out the way we think they should, when they should, and how they should, will all come to naught if they're not in alignment with God's will and plan. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and mercy in our lives. Lord, I'm grateful that you're a God of your word that you're a God that never fails or falters, that you continue to work in spite of all of our fallen, broken desires and tendencies, that your purposes and plans will prevail. We thank you for that. It gives courage and conviction and confidence and peace to our hearts that are so easily led astray. Lord, we pray that you will continue to accomplish your purpose, not only in our individual lives, but in our church life, that your glory might be manifest in this community, that all people may know that you are God worthy of worship, worthy of obedience, worthy of love. And we offer this prayer in Jesus' name, amen.